you would turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I forgot that somebody brought me coffee this morning until just now, so it may be halfway through the sermon before I wake up. First John chapter 4. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, I'm so thankful that you are here. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. Uh, the letter of First John is, is almost all the way to the, the back. If you find the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, just a few, few pages to the left, and you'll find First John. Join us in, in chapter 4. Well, friends, we live in a culture of instant gratification. Live it up now. Do what makes you feel good in this moment. That's the constant refrain of our generation. It's the constant attitude with which we live our lives. We hear the alarm clock go off because we need to go to the gym, but instead we hit the snooze button. Instant gratification. We turn to Google instead of seeking to study out issues for the glory of God and to really understand what is going on. We are prone to meals on the fly, fast food. We want relationships, but we dread the investment into them. There's no instant gratification there. And this is true in the church as well. We want all of the blessings of God, but we, we refuse to persist in prayer. We, we want the truth, but we're not again given to study. We want the blessing, but we're not prone to give of ourselves. We want healing, but we refuse to obey the words of God. We want assurance, but we fail and sometimes I think even reject the idea of being called to love the entire church of the living God. Now the gift to us this morning is this. John is not of our generation. John is writing from a perspective against this mentality of instant gratification. And just a side note, if you want encouragement in your life, there's no better place to come than the Word of God. But there are also other writings that are beneficial to your walk with the Lord, pastoral writings, writings that have at their aim a desire that you would be conformed into the image of Christ. There have been men for 2,000 years in the Christian pastorate who have given themselves to the study of this book and to the explaining of it in the ordinary circumstances of our lives. And their aim, if they are actually called of God, is the same. And Paul speaks of this in Galatians chapter 4. He says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out uh, that, you may may uh, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only for when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. 2,000 years of men who have written in the direction of seeking not just instant gratification, but that Christ would be formed in each member of the body of Christ. We can rest knowing because John writes as an apostle with the authority of God that he is one of these men. He is writing to us that Christ would be formed in us. He's been writing for our joy, that we would find that joy, not in the fleeting things of this life, but in the fellowship that we have with God the Father through the Son, empowered by the Spirit Himself. He's writing that we would be discerning, that we would love the body of Christ, and that we would find assurance in the love that we experience. John is not, again, in this for merely a quick fix. In fact, one of the things that I kind of just thought through for several hours this week was the reality 
that in the body of Christ, in this book, there are no quick fixes. There are only eternal remedies to what we face. And isn't that a joy? To know that God's not going to give us some just uh, quick solution to a problem that doesn't last. He is, in fact, redeeming us for His own glory. So John writes here, with an eternal weight seeking to remedy what ails every one of us in a lost and dying world, he points us to our being in Christ and that Christ is in us. That's what we've been dealing with for some weeks now. He points to our abiding in Christ. And John wants us to consider our lives ultimately not in a way that we would just live sporadically, But he wants us to live our lives in a way that we would consider the consequences of all of our actions. There's this danger in our day and age of of, of living for instant gratification. And there are many people, and I think even inside the church, that teach us just live for the moment. Just live in the here and now. But part of what we see when we stand back from the Word of God is that John and all of the other writers of the Bible speak of our lives as a continuation of living, of events that proceed and have consequences and are interrelated. And ultimately, what we learn is this. We cannot separate our beliefs, our attitudes, and our actions from their consequences. What you believe will come out in your attitudes and the attitude and disposition that you have towards the world around you will will ultimately manifest themselves in your actions and your actions really do have consequences in this life and in the life to come. Our lives, this side of heaven, matter. There's kind of an ethereal, mystical preaching today that wants to merely say, come and make a profession of faith and live however you want. Have your instant gratification because Jesus has paid it all. He's bought for you a ticket to live like hell and have all of the promises of heaven. That's That's a lie. That's not the Gospel. In fact, if we, if you want me to, I'm willing to preach through Ecclesiastes again. Because part of what we are taught in that work is that everything under the sun, when it is done in light of Christ, actually bears out an eternal weight. It actually matters. It's kind of like a river, if you would have that imagery in your mind. A picture of a a, a river moving along. and, And everything that we believe, and thank goodness that we believe more now than when we first believed. Amen? And thank goodness that the Lord in His grace constantly grows us in our belief. But those beliefs are going somewhere. And those beliefs ultimately empty out into the next river, which is our attitudes. And that river ends up moving us in another direction, and that is our a- actions. And ultimately, that moves in the direction of the, uh, the ocean of consequence. Uh, of the, the end result of our lives. And every one of us live in a way that our lives are moving in a direction. If you were to ask Adam when he sinned in the garden, if he thought that that one small act of rebellion, that one attitude that, does God really mean this? If that would really have a lasting consequence... I guarantee you, if he got to read everything after Genesis, he would be like, whoa, that's a whole lot of consequence to a very small headwater of action. In fact, every one of us, whether we like it or not, we are born, and from the moment that we are born, we are headed in the direction of our own demise, our own death. And that death is a consequence of our many actions, of our many attitudes, of our unbelief. You see, we must think about the life that we live when we walk out of the sanctuary this afternoon. We must think about it not as just living a life for the next second for instant gratification, but we must live our lives with this weight of this reality 
that we are going somewhere. Now what numbs us to that reality is we tend to get into routines, don't we? And it's cyclical. It feels cyclical. It feels like, well, I did this at work this week and I always do that. Uh, I'm, I'm raising these children and I always do that. Uh, and whatever your, your routine is, and you feel like you're going nowhere. John stands in front of us this morning to remind us as a church, you are headed somewhere. You are going somewhere. It's a sum of this passage. So if you would stand and hear his words in verse 17 for the last time. Starting in verse 7, John writes here under the inspiration of the Spirit of the living God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might have that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning acknowledging the reality that far too often we have neglected living our lives on Your Word. Father, we know that our salvation is not accomplished by our own comprehension of Your Word. It's not accomplished by our own merits or our own actions. It's not accomplished in our attitudes. Our salvation is something that You and You alone have accomplished through the work of Your Son as You have decreed from the foundation of the world. So we come today thankful and asking that You would mold us ever anew into the image of Christ, and that our minds would be changed, and that we would live in light of the day that is coming. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've looked at abiding in love. Excuse me. I feel like I'm going to have to move around a little bit. Uh, we've looked at abiding in love. And today we look at the reality that there are consequences to this joy of abiding in the love of Christ. And there really are three inevitable, and what I want you to walk away with, three inevitable consequences to abiding in the love of God. If God is in us and He has caused us to be born again, caused us to be believers this morning, and we are Christians, not by our own merits, not by our own works, not even by our own profession of faith, but we are believers because we have been given the Spirit of Almighty God, then it would be reasonable to believe that there are consequences to abiding in Him. To living in Christ. Abiding in the love of God then first proves the fact that God abides in us and that we are actually in Christ. You see, it's impossible 
for man to love apart from Christ. Man apart from the graces of God always tends, and we talked about this last week, in the direction of hate and self-destruction. Like a river that is surging against its banks, so is the heart of man, hell-bound and swiftly moving. There, There is this question that comes up when you preach the Gospel as it's actually intended in the Bible, that God saves men, end of story, And someone will say, well, that doesn't sound fair. What if there are people that want to come to Him and He just chooses not to save them? Friends, that's like asking, well, that's like asking about Sasquatch. He's not real. That doesn't exist. Move on. And and friends, apart from the graces of God, I'm telling you, man is hell-bound moving in that direction and not tepidly, swiftly. And that doesn't always appear on the surface. One of the things I grew up, this may fall flat in, a, in West Texas talking about rivers. Uh, but where I grew up, we had many of them. And one of the things that you're taught as a, a, a child, very young, especially if you're hillbilly in Missouri and your parents know that you're going to go wander around all over the place, is that there is something called undertow in the river. Just because it looks like a river that you can swim across and it's no big deal, don't get in the water because there are forces underneath that top layer that will suck you down. And I promise you this on the authority of the Word of God. That men may look moral. Men may look kind. Men may look like they're doing good things. But apart from the substantial grace of Almighty God, they are sucking themselves into oblivion and destruction. We don't love apart from Christ. This constant refrain in our culture that we just need to love people and get past doctrine is absolute foolishness because we don't actually know who Jesus is apart from the clear doctrines that are taught in the Word of God. And we don't know how to actually love in a way that God wants us to love apart from Christ Himself. The Bible speaks plainly to this reality. The Bible speaks to the reality that men and women left to themselves apart from Christ are not in a position of moral neutrality. It's one of the reasons why we can trust that this Bible is not written by men alone. God God moved men along through His Spirit. And and the reason that we can see that clearly reflected in the pages is because these men are honest. They're not PR representatives. They don't try to put a spin on who humans are. They, They point out the reality without fluff that everyone apart from Christ is living at this very moment under the wrath of God. Some of you again will say, well, it doesn't appear that way. It may not appear that way in the flesh, but it is a spiritual reality this morning. And what the world does is avoid this narrative altogether. This narrative that we are completely in and of ourselves, spiritually depraved, dead in our trespasses and sins. That's not something the world is going to to grandstand about. It's not something that the worldly church is going to speak about. You see, the church today wants to just hold a a rah-rah fest every Sunday morning. Just to smile and say, you're great and you need to remember how great you are and how how much God has loved you because you are so awesome. And, And what we end up doing is we deify man. We make much of men. And we peddle lies about where they really are. The problem is, friends, that our greatest enemy are friends that we have that lie to us about who we actually are. So our greatest friend is actually those who speak to us the most truth. It's like going to the doctor and asking, telling them that you have some particular ailment or some symptom and the doctor just repeatedly saying, no, no, you're, you're in great physical health and you finally like drag yourself into the exam room and you're like I can't move my legs and they just stand there but you're really okay you wouldn't hold on to that doctor very long 
And we shouldn't hold on to preaching and to teaching that puffs us up and that makes us think that apart from Christ we could do anything. That, that somehow we could dazzle and amaze God with our works. That boy, the church was really struggling and, and in a really bad spot until I showed up and started doing my ministry. That kind of thought, that type of Christian living is, is, is really antithetical to the Gospel of Christ. Our hearts, beloved, are evil. Prone to destruction. And unless the living God pulls us up, our hearts will take us under. Don't trust yourself. Don't believe in yourself. Don't look within yourself. Trust in the living God alone. Trust in Christ alone. The Bible tells us that we are hopeless without Him. If we find ourselves ultimately having this principle uh, we, of, of our life being only in Christ, we can rejoice that He is sufficient. And Scripture then at this point, when John says, if you abide in love... He is asking you to consider your own heart. He is saying, where is it that you abide? How is it that you are living? This is the fourth and final time that John deals with the phrase, abiding in God and God abiding in us. We know ultimately that we can't comprehend the fullness of this union that we have with Christ and the Spirit indwelling us. We can't fully comprehend all that this means. It's beyond our human ability to reason and to analyze. And yet the Bible is full of language like this, encouraging us not with something tangible, not, not with something that you might have joy in this world, church, if you have an auditorium that's huge. That not with church, you can have joy in this world if your bank account's full or if you're healthy. None of those things ultimately are what John aims at here or what the biblical authors aim at. Gives us this great reality that we can abide in God and God abides in us. So the things that we can understand, we can't understand it completely. But we can understand that it doesn't mean entering in a material sense into the life of God. And it doesn't mean that there is a material entry of the divine essence into our lives. This is a spiritual reality. What it means is something like this. God in His own miraculous manner brings us, awakens us to His own holiness. And He plants within us a view of life that ultimately surrounds all of who He is. To, to, to ultimately abide in God and for God to abide us in us means that we are alive in Christ. And that our whole view takes on the nuance of being God-centered. This word abides again, and I know I dealt with this last week, but it's such a, a rich word and it's one that I think all of us need to hang our lives upon. I think John is calling us to consider this word at great length by the number of time that he uses it. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. The simple meaning of the word is that we find our home in God. God is, have you ever heard that the, 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 maybe your grandma had this embroidered on a pillow, you know, one of those pillows that you weren't supposed to sit on? Uh, or you weren't supposed to use that was just there to be pretty. I feel a rabbit trail. I'm going to not go down that one. Uh, the saying that home is where the heart is. Uh, well, God is ultimately, once we have been regenerated by the Spirit, where our heart longs for. You know, we can spend time away from our home. Many of us go to work throughout the week or we go to school. And, and the whole time that we are away from home, we are thinking, I just want to be back home. I, I want to go see the people that are in my home. I want to go be with my family. Home is that place that we attend to as much as possible. 
Ultimately, what I think John is driving home here in light of chapter 5, verse 19, that we know we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is telling us, friends, in a, in a dark spiritual world, the only shelter you have for your soul is in the person and the work of the triune God. He alone is your refuge. A denomination will not shelter you. Pastors will not ultimately be your shelter. Good works cannot be your refuge. You can't make a fortification of how religiously moral you are. Your national heritage ultimately will fail you. Your bank account is not an appropriate oasis for your flourishing and fellowship. The only place where you can hide in this world is in the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. That is what, God, what, what John is telling us this morning. That our only hope in life and death is that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is where we find our comfort, our hope, and our rest. This really hints, touches, on something that academics call our worldview. The way that we see the world around us. Um, and, and what John is saying is that when we abide in God, and when we abide in His love, when we find our home in the reality that we were not deserving of the love of God, that we didn't straighten up our act, we didn't ever do anything to merit the love of God, but He simply, by the working of His Spirit, allowed us to see His holiness and to see our need for His redemptive works on our account and the shedding of Christ's blood for the remission of our sins and we approach the love of God through the blood of Christ when we see that reality it changes everything else about how we see the world we cannot see the world the same way we once saw it we can't see the world the way the atheist sees the world you know with that mindset of well we we're born just to die and we better enjoy the rivers in between. We can't live that way. And why? Because our eyes have been opened to the love of Christ on our behalf. We stop asking questions that are self-centered. We stop living our lives trying to... And friends, can I tell you something? One of the sad realities in, in some of our movement I think is this we're talking about those building false refuges one of the saddest is men who build an oasis for their soul in theological arguments theological arguments are not our dwelling place theological arguments if they're good point us to our true home point us to Christ. And so we see our world in that way. And we want good theology because we want clarity of who Christ is. But when we get to this point when He really is the one in whom we are abiding in, we're not asking questions that center on ourselves anymore. Rather, we ask, how can He get glory out of my life? How can I make Him known? How can I learn more about who He really is in a way that I can communicate that to people who are in a lost and dying world that is in the power of the evil one. Ultimately, we begin to live our lives from the perspective that everything points back to Jesus. Now ultimately, if anybody in this room has been in Christ for any period of time, we know that there are things that seek to pull us away from the Lord. There are things that seek to pull us away from abiding in Christ. And that is the sad testimony of every born-again Christian. Every one of us on a daily basis, if we're honest, can give testimony of the reality that our hearts have been pulled in sinful, earthly directions. And we've tried to satisfy that... Brian, I can't remember the, the lyric exactly, but the, that, that we ultimately hunger for cisterns that are cracked and poor, uh, that, that our hearts ultimately get dragged away from Jesus. But you know what happens if we really belong to Christ? We wake up one day and you know what we say? I want to go home. 
I want to go back to abiding in Jesus. I, I, I don't want to live this way. I want to live in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. I want my beliefs. I want my theology. I want my attitudes. I want my actions to have consequence, not in a way that I'm saving myself, but have consequence in bringing glory to His name. One of the things that Ultimately, I believe if we're really abiding in Christ, and friends, I mean this with all kindness, it's so easy to build up false refuges, build up false places of refuge in this world. It's so easy to become self-deceived. It's so easy to, to build up religious postures and to really not being, uh, to, to abiding in Christ. I think one of the hallmark realities of someone who really and truly is abiding in Christ is this knowledge. I'm not abiding here. I'm not in Jesus because of anything that I've done. I don't love Him because of who I am. I don't glory in His name. I don't lay my life down. I don't do anything in Christ because of me. I do it all because He is gracious and He is wise and He is compassionate in my life. It's all of Him. If it's something that will bring Him glory, then mark it down. It's something He's actually doing in me. That's what it means to abide in the love of Christ. So, one, a consequence to abiding in the love of God is that we can know that we're actually in Christ. That we belong to Him. And again, this is why John is writing for our assurance. The second consequence of abiding in the love of Christ is that it demonstrates His love being perfected in us. The authorized version, the King James Version of the Bible, says or translates this particular passage, Herein is our love made perfect. But ESV, I think, has a great way of expressing the actual translation. By this is love perfected with us. What does that mean? What does that phrase in the the first part of verse 17 mean? It means that God's ultimate purpose in salvation and in all that He has done in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is that we might become loving people. The perfect carrying out of, of the love of God is that we would actually be people who are loving We've read in verses 9 and 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Why? Why did Jesus come in the flesh? Why did He condescend to our lowly estate? Why is it that He set before us the plan of redemption? And why is it from the foundation of the world that we are elected unto salvation? Why has Christ, why has God set His Son so kindly and commended Him towards us? And the answer is that we might dwell in love. That we might actually become like him, as he is, also are we, excuse me, as he is, so also are we in this world. There is this danger of thinking, and I think that we get it by low preaching of the Word of God. That the only purpose that Jesus had in coming to shed his blood was for your forgiveness. And that's the extent of it. Now, friends, isn't it a joy to know that you're forgiven? Isn't it a a great encouragement to your heart? And you wouldn't get anywhere in the Christian life if you didn't know that through the love of Christ and God sending His only Son to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice for you, that you have been ultimately and for all times forgiven in Christ. That's a joy this morning. Isn't it? I mean, that's something we can build an entire service around. We can take a whole year to just ruminate on the reality of the forgiveness of Christ. But it's a first step. It's not the whole journey. It's not all that God intends to do. 
It's not everything that the Gospel is moving in the direction of. Is it a reality in the Christian life? Yes and amen. But it is not the full consequence of our redemption. The reality that Christ has purchased for us is not merely that we would be forgiven and then have a static state of merely just being morally neutral. The fullness of the reason why Jesus was sent that His love would be perfected in us. That it would continue in the body of Christ. We think so lowly of the Gospel when we come and we merely think about it in light of, well, I just want to be forgiven. And I can tell you that you mark it down. If someone says, I want the forgiveness of Christ, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church, then that is not a redemption that God is working out. Because if God is really forgiving you, He's letting you loose to a life that is better. A life where you genuinely begin to be as He is, so are you in the world. Now that comes and fits and starts and subjectively works itself out in different ways in every one of our lives. But when, friends, <laughs> this idea that God will save you, I had one of our missionaries several months ago that said, well, sometimes people just, you know, they get saved, but then they never grow. That's a, that's a cute religious accusation against the triune holy God. Because the reality of saying that is to say that when God does an action over here, its consequence may not work out the way He wants it to be over here. And that's a lie. When God saves you, now you may kick against Him. You may go, I don't want to love these people. I want to do things my way. And friends, if you haven't experienced that, you should do a, a study of self-deception. Because we've all done that. But the, the, the reality is, if Christ has really forgiven you of your sins, then He is going to be at work in your heart convicting you and moving you in the direction of loving the body of Christ. We think far too little of the atonement of Christ and its implications in our lives. We also think of sanctification often in, I think, uh, really low uh, with a really low view. We think of sanctification, so justification being made right in the sight of God, sanctification, our growing uh, in the likeness of Christ, but often I hear sanctification kind of labeled out, worked out practically, as merely, well, I don't do some of the bad things I used to do. I'm more sanctified now than I once was because I don't and fill in the blank. Whatever you don't do. And friends, part of sanctification is the mortification of our sin. Putting sin to death in our lives. And thank God that He is at work killing sin in us because otherwise the sin would be killing us entirely. But it's not the fullness of what sanctification is. The fullness of what sanctification is is our being molded, conformed to the image of Christ. Being positively loving the way that He would love. Being wise and being discerning and, and moving in the direction of bringing glory to His name. Sanctification is not about a list of negatives. But we learn from our Sunday school teachers just to cut it out. And so we by nature think that sanctification is just cutting it out. No, it is cutting it out. It's actually Him cutting it out. But then it's Him replacing every area where He has cut things away with more of who He is. That is the joy of the Christian life. So abiding in love proves that we are in Christ and it also proves that His love is perfected in us. We become more and more like Him. True Christians don't grow to be 95 years old and hate the church from the back pew. True Christians are, con are, are, are convicted of their sin and they repent and they turn, but they are turned on to loving the body of Christ and laying everything that they are and everything that they have down for the glory of God in that particular body. I believe that there's something toxic in the church today. And I think it's an overreaction to another overreaction, and that's what we do as people. 
The first overreaction is seeing every passage in the Bible that speaks about the church as being the local church and there is no universal church. That's nonsense. It's not every passage in the Scripture, in the Bible, is, in my opinion, is speaking only of the local church. But there's another, but, but so the, the overreaction to that is that we would see everything as the universal church. And we would not live our lives in the context of, of real people being sanctified through the work of the Spirit alongside of those sinful people. Well, I just love the, I just love the universal church. I'm going to go to McDonald's this morning instead of coming to church. I just love the universal church. I don't need to give. I, I, I love the universal church. I'm going to give my, my, uh, of myself in some other peripheral ministry, but the local church that's down the street from me, not interested in that. Friends, that is not what the gospel speaks into our lives. We should be committed to a body of believers. I'm thankful for the church that God has given for me to be involved in. They've not, Sarah and I were talking about the other day, the churches that we have been involved in in our lives have not always been easy to walk alongside of. And I'm not taking shots at life point, but that's just been a reality in our walk. But the more that I abide in Christ and I see what the Lord is doing in my own life, the more I realize that the church doesn't need to be perfected in glory for God to accomplish His redemptive work in my life. In fact, if you all were perfect, it would really bother me because I'm not. <laughs> it would be a real big buzzkill to come in here every Sunday morning and see you worshiping perfectly and relating perfectly and doing everything absolutely. Now, I want you to grow in Christ's likeness, and that's what the Bible commends to us. But, friends, we are in progress of that reality. So, abiding in love proves that we are in Christ, and it proves. That His love has been perfected in us. It also proves, verse 17, and this is so weighty, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. John is so loving, isn't he? John is known as being the apostle of love. He drives that home, the love of God towards us. He, he wants us to be encouraged. He knows the world is an awful place. And, and he wants us to be encouraged that we have a a Father who loves us. But here the Apostle of love lays down before us the tapestry of the reality of the judgment of Almighty God. And friends, this isn't just John speaking here. All of the Bible points to, appointed, to an appointed day of judgment. So the question we have to ask is, what does that mean? And what that means is not merely something figurative. Some look at, at death and they say, well, when, when John speaks of the day of judgment, the day of judge, judgment merely is a figurative term for the day that we all die. And what ends up happening on the day that we all die is we stand before our Maker in that very hour and He takes His little calculator and He adds up all of our bad deeds... And then he goes to the other side and he adds up all of our good deeds. Now, if you have been reading your Bible and you're a discerning individual, this is a net zero. There's no good works apart from Christ, right? Abiding in Him, there are good works that He has prepared beforehand. But the, the idea, the moralistic temptation is to see this figuratively. And God's just going to net out where you stand and, and how much... Uh, good things you have done and can cancel out the bad things you have done gives you better chances of finding favor in the judgment of God. That is absolute 100% nonsense. Sarah and I were watching a TV show. We are more and more convinced that every time I find something that I'm like, Sarah, I think we should watch this. She will just wrinkle her nose up and say, it's not worth watching, I can promise you. I finally talked her into watching this particular show. We're in episode like four. And the main character in the episode, mind you, my dear wife is sitting next to me having told me this isn't worth watching. So my pride is on the line here. And the main character says that his uncle told him that all sin was was the things that we did in this life, good or evil, and that ultimately they'd be added up, and the only difference 
in the lives of individuals is whether or not someone wound up in the deepest part of hell or the greatest part of heaven. What? Like this sliding scale. And it was a really cute rehash of that same moralistic nonsense that we all, I think, innately just are born with. It's not a figurative judgment day. I don't believe that that's the reality here. A day of judgment is not merely death. It's a great event, according to Scripture, that will take place at the end of the world and at the end of time. Now, let me tell you the starting point for dealing with the doctrine of the day of judgment. It's humility. It's saying from the onset there are things we don't know. It's saying that there are some matters of this doctrine that are somewhat obscure. And it's also leveling with the reality that as men and women, we tend to come to the Word of God and say that's great and then move on from the text and add to the text our own ideas. We shouldn't do that. We should remain ever so close to the text and allow the text to speak. So there are some things we can't know, but there are, praise God, some things that we can know in light of the biblical text. And one, three things. The day of judgment will be something formal. It will be public. And it will be fine. There are, th- there are again those who think of, 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 of judgment just in a moralistic way and we will reap what we sow and, and, and ultimately uh, we're just going to have to see how things pan out and that's just the way it goes. And it's kind of a fatalistic way of living life. But that's not the biblical teaching of the day of judgment. Ultimately, all of the imagery and all of the, the, the pictures that are used with respect to the day of judgment help us to see that it is a day, a, an actual event that is formal and fixed. It's going to be public. It's going to be final. There, there is something about this day where everything will be adjudicated, where God is going to display not merely in a negative sense uh, the judgment, but also in the positive sense of displaying His righteousness and His holiness. And every action will be dealt with. For those of you here who have been somehow abused in this lifetime, and you've experienced trauma, and you have this nagging question in your mind, is that particular thing going to be dealt with? The Bible says absolutely yes and amen. In fact, Romans tells us that vengeance belongs to the Lord, and there is a day coming when He will deal with the weight of every sin. Nothing will be forgotten. Every sentence will be pronounced. And there will be no... Oh, a court TV reporter off to the side second-guessing the judge. All of the judgments will be final. There will be no appeals. There will be no questioning as to whether or not these things are right. Now, there will be those who grit their teeth at God for the judgment that they receive. But for those of us who belong to the living God, we will know that He has displayed holiness and righteousness. If you want a great picture of this day, I think you can look at Psalm 91. And you see the picture there of many falling by the wayside, but, but it's the one who dwells in the shadow of the Almighty that is safe. It's the one who has found His ultimate covering for the day of wrath in the blood of Christ. Not seeking to earn it religiously, not trying to buy His way into the kingdom, but only through the merits of Christ. And do you know who spoke of the day of judgment more than anyone else in all of Scripture? Jesus did. Jesus was pointed at this reality and this day. And so, again, what can we know about this day? And I want to move through these quickly. One, we can know who the judge is. The judge will be Christ. John chapter 5, verse 27. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will set on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all of the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates 
the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep at His right hand and the goats on His left hand. There's a glorious reality in that text is that when we are separated out as being the sheep of His pasture, it is by grace alone. It's not because of our works. Acts chapter 10, verse 42, And we... And He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the day dead mark it down church our Jesus will be the judge when his gospel is profaned when his people are trampled underfoot when his righteousness is mocked know this that you don't have to be the defender in the full sense ultimately Christ will vindicate his name secondly one we know who the judge is the second question is who will be judged I think the first place we look is in Jude verses 5 and 6. Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Who's going to be judged on that day? Every demonic force that opposes the church of the living God will be dealt with. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. One day, Jesus is going to end that spiritual battle. And every angel that has fallen will be dealt with. Secondly, every human being that has ever lived, take a breath. That means you're going to be judged one day. And that should cause a weight to fall upon your heart. That should cause you to tremble in some sense. Now, those of us in this room who are bought by the blood of Christ tremble in a different way. We tremble because we want to honor our Father in heaven. We don't tremble thinking that He is our judge because our judgment has been executed upon Christ. But friends, the type of preaching that leaves the judgment of God as something that Christians don't need to be concerned with is anathema. It is not the preaching of the New Testament. Every human being. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans chapter 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Romans chapter 20 says that God's books will be opened and that every man who has ever lived, whether believer or unbeliever, will be confronted by this judge. And again, there's a difference there. One, uh, those who are not repentant and believing, if you're here this morning and you've never turned to Christ, our heart's desire is that you would run to Christ and to Christ alone this morning. That you would come to Him for salvation. Those who are outside of Christ will bear a legal judgment. They will be found guilty and they will bear their punishment for all of eternity. But those of us who are under the blood of Christ, we ultimately find refuge in the blood of Christ. But we will still have our deeds judged. And we want to live in a way that we can bring glory to His name on that day. Not by our own strength. Again, anything that we would do to bring glory to Him, we ultimately know is something that He's doing in us. But we're still concerned about the day of judgment. Third, we can know about the standard of judgment. We will all be judged according to the knowledge that we have. That's not a encouragement to have little knowledge it's just the reality that there will be those who have never heard the word of God and they will be judged according to the standard of their own conscience God has written his eternal law on the hearts of men 
We all know righteousness from unrighteousness. We all have a conscience that bears witness within us whether something is right or wrong, and God will judge according to that weight of that standard. The Jews will be judged according to the law that they have been given. And we as Christians will be judged by the Gospel. Now ultimately, every person will be judged according to the standard of Christ. And I don't want to make false delineations here. But there is a sense in which the Scriptures teach that there are degrees of judgment and there are degrees of reward. You remember in Luke chapter 12, verse 47, and, this, and that servant who knew his master will but uh, his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating but the one who did not know and did what was deserve or what deserved a beating will receive a light beating everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they demanded the more Now friends, if that's a reality, if you've been given much and much is going to be expected of you, and you're going to be judged in the weight of the reality of what you know, can I really drive in this question? How can we who have the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ not be concerned with the day of judgment? We have been given the greatest gift that could ever be given in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been given the greatest joy of knowing that our salvation does not come from our works and that our redemption is not because of who we are. It is all because of who He is and what He has done in our lives. How dare we conceal that? How dare we take that trivially? So the question then is, what is our only hope of confidence on the day of judgment? Is it that we obey our conscience? Well, I believe that we should obey our conscience. But if that were our only hope on the day of judgment, I think we would all live in despair. Is it That we give honor to the law of God? I believe that the law of God deserves to be honored. The imperatives of Scripture have not been abrogated uh, by the redemption that we enjoy. We should still look to the reality that God, God gives us a pattern of living righteously before Him. But friends, we cannot complete the law in our own strength. Is it ultimately... That we love the body perfectly? Who in this room today would stand up and say, I have loved the body in a way that I want to stand before the judgment seat of God today? Not one of us. I hope you see in all of those things a pattern of what God calls you to as a Christian. But friends, the only hope that we have on the day of judgment is that we are abiding in Christ. That He is our home. That we have found Him to be sweet and loving and kind. Friends, the reality is and we don't know how to love the body if we don't honor our conscience. If we don't look into the law of God. If we don't put the church in the forefront of our minds. And that's part of what John is encouraging us to today. But the greatest encouragement he's laying before us is that we can find a way to love others in an unloving world by finding everything that we need in Christ. That we can rejoice and know that the day of judgment is is a place where we will have confidence and that confidence doesn't land in us in the smallest respect. It lands only on the person of Christ and His work in us. This should take some things away from us. Because the reality is, if we are going to love the body well, we have to abandon the quick fix mentality, the instant gratification 
uh, worldview. That has to go out the window. Because Jesus didn't choose to save righteous people. He chose to save sinners. we got a whole group of them in here. And to love the body well is going to cause you pain at times. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to look the way that you want it to look. But I promise you this on the authority of the Word of God. If you will abide in Christ and constantly be reminded of the love that He has towards you, you will grow in love for people who are not in and of themselves lovely. And on the day of judgment, you will find that that life is more magnificent and beautiful and worth living than anything that would gratify you instantaneously. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning thankful that our salvation is not in our own merit. But Father, we come this morning acknowledging the reality that you, having begun a good work in us, will see it through to completion. And part of what you are doing in us is causing us to love one another. Calling us to love one another. Father, we want the consequences of your redemption to be felt in this place. We don't want to quench the Spirit and we don't want to push back at what you're doing. Help us live lives of humility. Help us live lives not resting in our own thoughts, our own ideologies, our own goodness, our own morality. Help us to abide in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, we're so thankful for the gift of knowing You as Redeemer and Savior. If there's one here that doesn't know You, would You do what only You can do and open their blinded eyes that they may behold the goodness of Your righteousness, that they may see their own sin and turn to You in repentance and faith.